0: All right, let's pick up where we were um, right at the end of the time, uh, last time. I think I just uh, uh, put up this little schematism, a way of summarizing things, um, and have begun to make a couple of comments, and I may repeat myself here a bit, but uh, it will be very uh, complete. We'll be past that uh, quickly. Um, The rest... Uh, The central category of the katapausis, which the writer picks up from uh, Psalm 95, uh, Septuagint, as he utilizes that uh, in his commentary, that psalm material, this category of rest in its context, of course, Uh, four um, things can be um, affirmed of it. It is, uh, first of all, eschatological. Then uh, a second point that we spent some time in trying to argue, and not only is it future, but is, it is in, within the framework of this passage again, uh, it is in, uh, exclusively future. It is in, as we saw in 4.9, uh, called a Sabbath resting, and further, in, verse, in, in virtue of the use of Genesis 2.2 in 4.2, three, 4.4, or for use of Genesis 2-2, uh, it is uh, rooted in the reality of God's rest at creation. Those are the uh, um, uh, way we can uh, crystallize or pinpoint our work. Now, let me just uh, make a couple of um, observations as this would bear on the whole uh, theology of the Sabbath and particularly as that would impinge on the, um, uh, the continually debated um, question in um, the life of the church whether or not um, a weekly Sabbath observance continues under the New Covenant. Now, uh, I may have said this last time, when you take A and C together, that is the eschatological character of the rest, and that fact then that it is called Sabbath resting, then uh, it seems we should say that the weekly Sabbath, whatever else may have been its significance or its functions, that is an eschatological sign or type. The weekly Sabbath uh, is a sign or type, particularly it is an eschatological sign or pointer. It points to eschatological rest. That is the, uh, the deepest uh, or, or, uh, yeah, deepest, most fundamental significance of the weekly Sabbath. It points to the future. Now, um, to deny that sort of connection for the writer um, would mean that we would have to uh, hypostasize or suppose that the writer coined the term Sabbath resting. We we, uh, suggested that already. He coined that uh, expression for eschatological rest, not only did he do that, he connected it with the uh, uh, with the Genesis two passage, which the only other usage of that passage in Scripture uh, in the old, is in the Old Testament, as and as it is used um, there several times to uh, mandate or ground um, uh, to institute the weekly Sabbath. Uh, so uh, to say um, uh, to deny this this connection between the the weekly Sabbath. Um, or or to to deny that the weekly Sabbath is an eschatological pointer would be to assume that the writer uh, did all this, yet did so without any thought of the weekly ordinance. And that is, uh, as I said, an unlikely supposition. Now, considering um, B, that is, that from the writer's viewpoint, uh, the Sabbath resting, the rest as Sabbath resting, is future exclusively future, Uh, in view of that, the weekly Sabbath continues in force under the New Covenant, would be the implication of his statement. To deny that, to deny that the weekly Sabbath continues in force, is to suppose, would involve us in supposing, that for the writer the weekly sign has ceased, even though the reality it points to is still future. And that, it seems to me, is an unlikely supposition at best. Um, I think we could put it in the form of a question as I have. What rationale would explain on the author's part um, a severing between the sign and the fact and and the the reality that it points to as still unfulfilled? In the third place, and we... uh, may be on um, somewhat more uh, speculative ground here, although um, I don't really think so. Considering uh, D and, and the use that the writer makes of Genesis 2.2, it seems that we can draw from that that the weekly Sabbath is a creation ordinance, a so-called creation ordinance. Now, I use that language because that is often... Um, that has become currency in, in, in the um, discussions about the Sabbath that go on. Um, to deny that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, to deny that would seem to disagree with the writer's own interpretive treatment or handling of Genesis two two. Now, remember what we tried... Uh, let me just uh, amplify that a little bit further. Remember what we uh, tried to point out as we were... Um, uh, when we first saw the introduction of Genesis 2.2, the writer not only finds there a narrative, if you will, he not only finds a description of God's rest at creation, but he also saw the narrative as prescriptive. He saw in the narrative the design and mandate, and we should emphasize again, the eschatological design and mandate that humanity enter and share the eschatological rest. He saw Genesis 2.2 not only descriptive, but he drew from that the implication um, that um, it was focused uh, on a future, that humanity should enter and share God's rest. So, uh, what that you see, brings us to uh, be saying, observing in effect, is that the sign pointing to the reality that is is grounded in creation itself, mandated at creation itself, the sign pointing to the reality is itself grounded in that mandate. If we could put that somewhat more uh, formally, um, as eschatology is the goal of protology, eschatology is the goal of Protology. I'm assuming you're familiar with that word. It's uh, it's uh, employed as a technical term, off the Greek adjective uh, protos, as eschatology is off eschatos, uh, referring to first things or the original creation structure. Uh, what we're observing here within the framework of the writer's thinking is that as eschatology is the goal of protology, so the eschatological sign, the weekly Sabbath has a protological basis. So, um, or at least we could go on to say there are no offsetting considerations to this inference that we're drawing uh, within the context here, no offsetting considerations. So, um, finally then, uh, by way of an overall conclusion, for the writer... The weekly Sabbath is an eschatological sign grounded in creation and continuing under the new covenant until the consummation. The weekly Sabbath, an eschatological sign grounded in creation, continuing under the new covenant until the consummation. Uh, To put it negatively, the writer does not support the view that because A spiritual rest has already been brought by Christ, that because of the spiritual rest that has come in Christ, um, the weekly Sabbath keeping is no longer necessary or even appropriate. The writer does not support that view. The notion, then, of an evangelical or Christian Sabbath is entirely in harmony with the teaching of Hebrews three and four not say that it is absolutely demanded. Now, yes, let, uh, let, let me uh, put your question down on the agenda of yet unanswered questions. First of all, ab- after this, let's, uh, the question came up last time about Colossians 2.16. And um, let me just uh, comment it, uh, turn there, if you will, not that I intend to go into any overwhelming or impressive exegesis Whatever that might be, um, but just a couple of uh, comments. Um, uh, the question comes: uh, What about the statement of verse 16, where Paul says, "Let the, therefore, let do not let anyone judge you in eating and in drinking or in marriage. There can be some." a debate on translation there. I think it's likely, uh, it's, it's kind of an abstract uh, connective. So that's in respect of, or in respect of feasts or new moons or Sabbaths, verse 17 we should continue, which are shadows of the things that would come, detosoma to tu Christu, but the body is of Christ, or Christ is the body. So now you see, uh, Paul is here identifying the Sabbath, among other items, uh, within the category of shadow. Shadow, then, which clearly from the context is said to be obscured uh, or or, or removed because the substance, or soma, uh, is Christ. And surely this is not Christ at some future point, but the Christ who has already arrived. No question about that. Uh, just to, to uh, up the ante here uh, slightly, if you look in Herman Ritterboss's commentary that he has on Colossians in Dutch, unfortunately, um, the, um, uh, in, in, uh, he has maybe uh, two lines in which he simply says, this verse clearly shows that Paul considers that the Sabbath has been abrogated and is no longer in effect. So you can appreciate the effect that it had on me, some of you anyway, when I first... First read these words from my uh, father teacher, Herman Ritterboss, but now um, i don't th- I think that that uh, reflects the uncareful exegesis that even Hermann Ritterboss appears to have been uh, capable of on on occasion. all right, uh, you know from Silva, if no one else, that context is king. Um, the, the the importance uh, of of keeping the context in view always, and that I think is particularly important here. Uh, we need, uh, for instance, to keep in view um, the larger uh, front that Paul is addressing in this letter, um, the Colossian heresy. You can read about that in, in Guthrie. You need to bone up on that. Uh, there is some debate as to uh, what that uh, what the opposition was. Uh, permeating into the church in some way. Um, the, uh, well, it can be focused, well, no, let me, I'll, I'll finish that thought. Um, the, the debate for a long time was, was it essentially pagan in character or was it essentially um, uh, Judaizing in character? And, and more and more recent discussions have uh, broken down that way of putting the problem and, um, and seeing that it, it, it's really a sort of a combination of those um, fronts, in the sense of some kind of uh, gnosticizing Judaism or Judaizing Gnosticism, that has uh, permeated itself into the life of the church, and particularly has begun thinking in terms of a of a hierarchy um, that uh, of angelic uh, involving angelic be- beings descending from Christ. Moving on down a scale from Christ um, to the church, so the whole, uh, to, so the whole fir- focus of, of the church in worship has been skewed, and, and the the supremacy of Christ, of course, is what is being undermined. Now, within that larger framework, the um, uh, you have. Um, we can look at looking at it in terms of literary considerations we 're looking at a context that is bounded by two six, opens at two six and continues um, through two nineteen or we could uh, probably uh, you notice if you have a Bible societies and text in front of you, they break uh, at two twenty. Uh, you might want to continue that over to the 23, and then put uh, the new life in Christ heading at the beginning of chapter 3. But it, it's um, th- those issues we don't have to settle here. Now, you see, in this, um, uh, in this framework, Paul exhorts, don't let anyone lead you captive through philosophy and the vain deceit, and vain deceit or deception according to the traditions of men and then we have this expression, according to the stokea of the world and not according to Christ, the rudiments of the world, not according to Christ. And um, you see, you have that same expression down in 2.20 of Colossians. Uh, if you died with Christ from the rudiments, the rudimentary elements of the world. Uh, so that is uh, that, by the way, has... Uh, uh, Interpreters have had a a, a great time, um, doctoral dissertations have been written and so on, on um, trying to focus what exactly is the reference of of the rudiments of the world. And I think it's out of that discussion, by the way, that uh, uh, traditionally it was put either this this is the law or this is some pagan um, uh, astrological speculation and um, that really more and more... um, it, it 's not a it 's not a choice between either but it 's sort of a judaizing um, it 's sort of an effort to harmonize uh, uh, Jewish and pagan thinking so that 's why you could make a case for both, and you really shouldn 't try to press it now, in the midst of all that you see paul says makes the statement then of verse two sixteen and seventeen and uh, particularly because um Uh, The Judaizing side of this front is is concerned to keep the whole Old Testament ceremonial system in force uh, as part of um, um, the religious uh, matrix or profile they want to maintain. And it's um, um, really all all this background that I've been going into in here is, is a bit gratuitous, um, to, to really get at, the, I think, is the key point that is raised in the question, that what Paul here is indicating is that the whole Old Testament ceremonial system is what has been done away with in Christ. But you see, there is more to the Sabbath and the Sabbath institution than, the old, than, than its place in the Old Testament ceremonial system. Now, Paul is addressing that aspect of it, but particularly... Uh, and, and this is where our work in Hebrews helps us, uh, particularly if we, uh, if, if we look at the way the writer of Hebrews looks at things, you see, uh, the Sabbath, the Sa- let's call it the Sabbath principle. The Sabbath principle roots in creation, and particularly uh, the weekly Sabbath roots there. Now, that Sabbath principle, then, uh, under redemption, uh, takes on um, an elaboration, uh, particularly in, in under the Old Covenant dealings of God with Israel. Um, under Old Testament Israel, not only do we have a weekly Sabbath, but we have Sabbath years and we have the Jubilee year. So the Sabbath principle under uh, as it existed and functioned for a time um, within uh, the life of, of, of Old Covenant Israel, particularly dating from the time of the Exodus, uh, that involved not only a week, uh, but year and Jubilee year. Leave to the side whether the Jubilee year ever got actually celebrated. It certainly got celebrated, the prophets tell us, during the exile. Uh, that wasn't exactly what Israel had in mind, but um, that was uh, the way it worked out. Now, um, you see then what happens for the new covenant church, is that all of that, the way the Sabbath was configured, let's put it that way, the way the Sabbath was configured under, for Old Testament Israel, that is what has been swept away with, swept away, done away with. But you see, it still leaves the issue of the Sabbath uh, as it is grounded in creation before redemption, and as uh, pr- as a pre-redemptive sign, even points to a certain eschatology. So that um, um, along uh, along those lines, uh, looking at this passage in context, we have to be careful that we don't push uh, its implications beyond Paul's intention here. What he's saying is 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 it's the old, if, if I could put it this way, the old covenant Sabbath has been done away with. Uh, the Sabbath as it functions as part of the ceremonial system, but there is more, what Paul doesn't say here, what, what a larger uh, biblical theology teaches us, there is more to the Sabbath than what takes place um, as shadow and is done away with in Christ. So, um, it's along that line that I, I that I at least respond um, to your question. And uh, then the question that uh, was raised about, I, I, you, excuse me, I've, we can come back to this if you want. Um, see, I think the the change of the day is. I think that's a difficult question, but I think that the um, it's um, it, it, see, it's 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 the instinct of the church, the response of the church from the very beginning that because of Colossians two sixteen, um, something has happened, and and that uh, that the, the to document that in the life of the church, uh, the eschatological rest t- sign now shifts from the end of the week cycle to the beginning of the week cycle, particularly as that is the, uh, the, uh, the day of Christ's um, um, resurrection. So, you know, in a nutshell, I, I like to put it this way, that uh, uh, um, the um, a first day, uh, a so-called Sunday Sabbath, is, is the sign to the church of realized eschatology. Uh, that there is still a weekly Sabbath uh, is a sign of unrealized eschatology, the not yet dimension. Now, I realize that uh, that may seem to be theological finessing. Is, 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 you know, I'm not sure that, um, you, that you can demonstrate with, with exegetical ineluctability that um, the day has been changed from the seventh to the first but I think... Uh, let me just have my say uh, uh, further here. Um, I think in this respect, you see, the way in which the strongest proponents of, what, of the conclusion that we have drawn here that the Lord's Day is a Christian Sabbath, the strongest proponents of that, at least confessionally, which is the Westminster Confession, um, I think at the same time, the way in which it is presented um, is, I think... Um, I think I, should have, I would have to say this, obscures the eschatological force of, of the weekly Sabbath, which we have, um, um, I think, brought out in, in, in the Hebrews 4 passage particularly. What I have in mind is this, and by the way, this is a reservation that I expressed to my uh, presbytery when I was uh, licensed a quarter of a century ago. It's not that what the Westminster Confession says is wrong, but, it, but if you look, uh, where the Westminster Confession discusses the Sabbath is in the chapter on worship. And the Sabbath then is, is marked out after discussions of, of the place of the word and prayer. Uh, the weekly Sabbath is seen, particularly in, in, in sections 6 and 7 of the Westminster Confession, uh, as a time that God has set apart for the church to worship. And uh, the, what, I, what to me in a biblical theology of the Sabbath is, is really the, the deeper underlying consideration of a Sabbath as a week of weekly rest as succession from the activities, particularly the calling of the of the other six days as an indication that our life is, is consecrated to God and, and is moving somewhere somewhere. Um, You see, the Sabbath is part of a week cycle, and and, and the weekly cycle with with, with its rest break shows that history is going somewhere. We're not caught in a vicious round of activity day after day after day. But there is, as the writer says, a a Sabbath resting for the people of God. Uh, That whole dimension uh, of the eschatological rest just doesn't come to expression there. So um, certainly that the corporate worship of God's people would be appropriate to that day, and there are clear indications in Scripture that, uh, that there was... Uh, solemn assembly um, in the old covenant, the gathering of God's people in the new covenant on the first day of the week. Uh, while worship is certainly appropriate, um, it, it it should not. Uh, our theology of of the, of the Sabbath is not exhausted in worship. All right. Um, anybody else want to say anything in this? Uh, yes, Bruce. Yeah, I. That's uh, that's an interesting thought. I'd never had it put me, to me that way. I think you, you know you'd want to you'd want to spend some time thinking about that and, and um, you know, try to argue it. Um, my own reaction would be, see, what, what he did have at hand is this verb, sabbatizo from uh, Septuagint Greek, used to describe weekly Sabbath observance. And I think that what, what he did is take this root and, and, and form the, the zeta mutates to a sigma, and there you have sabbatismos. Now that's the way I've been inclined to look at it. So I I would, you know, I'd I'd at least raise a question to the thesis: if there's some deliberate, you know, theological distinction that he wants to make between old and new covenant there. But you know, uh, try to argue it. Yes, Peter. Yeah. Well, see, I would say that 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 only the believer can keep the Sabbath. But the Sabbath, you see, particularly if 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 you if you take its fourth. If, if we take the fourth commandment formulation as rooted, excuse me, the fourth commandment formulation from Exodus, as distinct from Deuteronomy, you're aware of that difference in Deuteronomy, it's rooted in redemption, the fourth commandment in Exodus is rooted in creation, that, that this, 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 is, um, this is the order for, um, not just for God's people, but for humanity. And um, I know, for instance, uh, I don't know if this is in the background of your question, but I know Dr. Klein has, has raised questions about whether, about the whole blue laws uh, enterprise. And I don't want to get into that because I think that raises other issues. But um, I, I think at this point I would be hesitant um, to say that um, the, the fourth commandment and unbelievers' failure to keep it, is, is a continuing indictment for not, uh, for not entering in seek, uh, Hebrews 4.11 not seeking to enter God's rest, just as every other commandment uh, indicts. So that for an unbeliever to uh, keep a rest day one day a week, um, I can see the, how should I put it, the, the asymmetry with, with, uh, with the other commandments. Uh, and I guess if you press me, is it is it better for uh, for a, for a non-believer not to keep a weekly rest day than say not to steal? Um, I, I'd still want to try to hold those together somehow. You can see I'm just talking off the top of my head, and I don't have a. Uh, I haven't really thought that through to some convincing reply, but but I I'd, I'd say be careful with with the idea that. Um, that the weekly Sabbath is only designed for believers or is irrelevant to, to non-believers. Okay? No. Well, uh, Excuse me. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Go ahead first. That They continue to argue that position very vigorously, and their argument would be that it's clearly the seventh day in the Fourth Commandment, Saturday. No question about that. So I think... Uh, and, and from... Um, uh, defending a first day Sabbath, I don't think you should ever get into the position of trying to argue that the fourth day, the fourth commandment, as sometimes is done, is, only, is just saying any one day in seven. Um, it's saying Saturday. And uh, their argument would be, you know, where do you have anything in Scripture that mandates you to change that? See, I think uh, as you start to look at these things in larger theological constellations, um, the, uh, what you find, even though I think there are uh, evidently, um, I don't know a whole lot about this from personal experience, but just from things I read, there are some very encouraging developments taking place in Seventh-day Adventists. In other words, um, the gospel has begun to take hold. I think that uh, at least traditionally that position uh, you know, had a woefully inadequate, it, it's kind of like what Paul's getting at in Colossians, Uh, They would talk about Christ, but they they really had uh, an adequate conception of the person and work of Christ. And I think that played into it. um, I got involved a few years back in in reviewing a book by um, Samuel, I think it's something like that. Uh, I've forgotten the title. It has some Seventh Day in it. But he he is, I think, probably the most recent and responsible a Seventh Day Adventist um, defender of the Seventh Day. Oh, um, yeah. I I don't know that we, we have taken an official uh, stand on it. I think that there are indications that um, you know the, the the truth of justification by faith, particularly, which was um, I think in the earlier teaching, earliest in the in the origin of the Seventh Day Adventist, the earliest teaching was really. Um, quite obscured, if not denied, that has begun to have more of a of an impact. But uh, I don't know that uh, you know. There's still the question of of what um, you know of, of the um, status they give to the writings of Ellen White, and and uh, I, that's not a. I, I think I would want to recognize, this, say in an analogous way to many encouraging things that are happening among Roman Catholics. But uh, the church still has to be measured by its confessions, and, and I'd be hesitant to make a judgment, like a, a wide-scale, uh, just a sweeping judgment. Right? Anything? Yes. Uh, one, two, three. Go ahead. Just, just a general statement that I, I have become more and more convinced over the year. Don't, don't, um, don't bind homiletical considerations to exegetical considerations. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that exegesis has nothing to do with preaching. But, see, I think there are many ways you can approach homiletically, and my answer the way you put the question would be both. Um, just uh, what I've found, uh, uh, one, a text that I've used to have preached from is Hebrews 4.14 that stands just after the, uh, the passage. Having there, a gr- for a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. See, now there you have the hortatory, and, in, and lying in back of of, of of let us hold fast our confession, you know, the whole wilderness comes in there. But see, at the same time, um, you don't want to be preaching the, the, the indicative without the imperative. And you don't want really the imperative either without the indicative. And I think then, um, you know, there are any number of ways you can... It's, it's just because for the writer they're interfused uh, that you can, I think, go... In, in either direction, depending how carefully you're working through the passage or yeah, you, know. uh, you know, I I just I sound repetitious. Come back to the whole book. 8.1 in the light of 1322, the main point is the Christ our high priest in heaven, as this is part of a word of exhortation. Or in this context, uh, the main point is the sun over the house but then, you know, that never leaves us as, as spectators of the house, whose house we are, if we hold fast. You, you mean that implicit, particularly as this stands before the account of the resurrection? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah an interesting thought. I, I'd, have to, I'd have to think about that. I think it's surely the case that the earliest church, particularly in its foundational period, they probably celebrated both uh, Jewish Sabbath, seventh day, uh, until they were pushed out of the synagogue. They gathered for the synagogue worship, and at the same time began to assemble. So there, there's probably it's not as if, you know, at some point on the calendar, you know, now Sunday is the red letter day instead of Saturday. But there's a there's a transition, or period. And um, but I I have to think more about your. And and uh, but your your point then about the end of verse fifty six is that it's um, it's sort of saying um, they celebrated the Sabbath as usual but now something is going to happen significant in chapter uh, yes go ahead uh, on the outline sheet uh, I would like to do one. Uh, more major subunit under this Roman numeral one, eschatology and ethics, as we have it on the sheet. Uh, And that is to uh, focus more directly on um, the key passages indicated there. They often come up in discussion about Hebrews uh, that raise the issue of apostasy, the issue of apostasy. And our concluding section will be much uh, briefer. Craig, your, your your question you just asked me. See, it, it prompts. Um, you just if you, see, look at the way I have configured material. See, so, you know, why don't I begin with the uh, heavenly high priestly ministry of Christ, which I well could have, but I've chosen to uh, uh, to this uh, this section that's somewhat long on eschatology and ethics, simply because it uh, there are issues that have come up in this. It's it's sort of a history of in, of interpretation framework that sort of disposes me to get into the, but I, I certainly wouldn't want to say that anything that I've been doing here is is more important or more basic than um, than the reality of, of Christ's high priest. It brings out you know I think the point where you ended up in your own comments. they just you can't separate them. Now um, you see I think the model or we can even say now the identity of the church as a new wilderness community that we've just been developing under point C. That provides us with a framework for reflecting on these um, several passages that speak of apostasy. Um, The church having, I think, firmly in mind the church as a pilgrim congregation, to say it another way, Uh, and and we could emphasize now the eschatological pilgrim congregation, it it strikes me that that provides the writer's own framework, his intended framework for understanding these passages, these perennially troublesome passages. Uh, Notice, before we get at the passages that I have indicated there, how we have uh, closely connected uh, statements um, that anticipate them right within our passage itself. 3.7 three seven and following. Uh, three twelve for, um, for one. See to it, brothers, that uh, there not be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in literally apostasizing from the living God and turning away from the living God. And um, then the very next verse. Exhort one another's uh, daily uh, as long as it's called Samaron today, in order that no one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you see, the issue of apostasy is uh, um, is is one that arises right out of the wilderness situation. Uh, but then we have, as we move through the book, these uh, the particularly emphatic, particularly negative kinds of statements in the three passages indicated. Uh, so what I'd like to do first uh, is read them and then um, uh, treat them as much as possible uh, for, the, for efficient use of time, if nothing else, as a unit. But I think uh, it's not only a matter of pedagogical efficiency or whatever, but um, it, it's most helpful to see them together. Now, first of all, looking at 6, 4 through 6. 6, 4 through 6. Four. It is impossible that those who have once been enlightened. Now, what we have here is a series of four participles, parallel to each other. Participial expressions: those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the of the heavenly gift, and third become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and fourth have tasted the good word of God. And the powers of the coming eon and uh, fall away. Excuse me. This is we should have lumped um, one. This is two, Um, and uh, um, well, however we count them. And this is this is parallel and have fallen away. It's impossible uh, to renew again to repentance these, so described, since, and we'll make a judgment now on the force of, force of this participle, since they re-crucify to themselves the Son of God and uh, put him, the Son of God, to public disgrace or make open mockery of him. So we have a, um, the, the basic uh, syntax here is that you have a series of uh, participles in the accusative which are subject, and then they take. This is the main verb of the whole construct. So, that, so syntactically, the, the basic line of the syntax. It is impossible to re, renew uh, these to repentance. Um, um, wait a minute now. Th- th- these excuse me. These should be seen as as objects. With with a, with a uh, an impersonal subject of the infinitive, it's in, it is impossible to renew uh, again to repentance um, these people so described. Keep that question. We'll, we'll, we'll get at that uh, at least to a extent. Now move on to chapter ten. Slightly different syntax or, or a different syntactical uh, pattern. For if, we, a genitive absolute construction at the beginning, for if we sin, or as we could translate the present participle here, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, uh, no longer does there remain sacrifice for sins. But what does remain is a certain fearful expectation of judgment, And this is in the nominative case now, uh, literally a a jealousy or zeal. Uh, As we might translate, a fury of fire, fire which is about to consume or eat up those who oppose. Um, For anyone rejecting the law of Moses dies without mercy at two or three witnesses at the uh, testimony of two or three witnesses, we might trans. By how much uh, worse judgment do you suppose will be uh, reckoned worthy? Of how much worse judgment do you suppose will be reckoned worthy the one who tramples underfoot the Son of God reckons the blood of the covenant to be common or unclean, unholy, the blood of the covenant in which he was sanctified, and insults the spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Um, It is something fearful, falling, to fall into the hands of the living God. And then the material in chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. Seek, pursue peace with all, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Look, Seeing to it that no one of you comes short, there's kind of an ellipsis here. What we have is a participle really uh, without, a, without a, a finite verb form or main verb. Uh, but it, it just best translated, lest someone come short, fall short of the grace of God, lest someone, um, lest a certain root of bitterness growing up cause trouble and many be defiled through it, that is the root of bitterness. And then uh, further seeing to it, See, there's a series of May clauses that we're we're to see to, doesn't happen, that see to it then further that uh, no one uh, be a a sexually immoral or godless person as Esau, who for one meal uh, traded away, gave away uh, his um, birthrights, the rights of the firstborn, For you know that afterward, even afterward, wishing to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. uh, For he did not find place for repentance, although he sought it with tears. And then jumping a few verses later, verse 25, uh, Look out, see to it that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. And then we have a construction that is, is similar to what we saw in chapter 10, um, the Affordiore, arguing from the old to the new. For if those did not escape when they rejected uh, the one who warned them on earth, or did not escape on earth, we can argue about how to construe the epigase, how much more do you, uh, will uh, we who reject? The one who spoke or speaks from heaven, not escape. There's considerable ellipsis there. Okay, um, let's take our break and then uh, we'll start our discussion on these three passages.